0: Grace City, good morning. I'm glad to be with you um, again this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Seth Brill. I'm the interim teaching pastor here at Grace City. Um, to tell you that I'm overjoyed to be here is probably not the right word, um, but I am honored and I'm humbled to get to stand here in the gap with you um, for a second time in the life of your church and and just be with you, to walk with you, um, to weekly open God's word to see what he would reveal to us as a body of believers. I want to encourage you and and help shepherd you in the coming weeks and months as your church walks through a very difficult time, um, especially at your age. You know, Grace City has not been around all that long. And I think what's happening is Grace City is kind of just walking through some of those growing pains. And so I'm really here just to kind of help with that, to walk with you. And the past couple of weeks, as I listened to one of our elders, Michael, talk about what God's doing in the story of Acts, he used this phrase a couple different times. He said, hey, this is a timely word for the life of our church. The church collectively, yes, but specifically for our church in this room. And as as I picked up the text to finish our series called Church on the Move, I found it to be yet another just timely word for this body of people. And spoiler alert, more conflict is coming. That's what we've seen the past two weeks is there has been a lot of conflict. And today where we're gonna pick up is we're gonna see even more conflict happening as the church is really figuring out who she is and is being built up and is growing. But the conflict we're gonna read about today is a bit different than the past two weeks. A couple weeks ago, as Michael walked us through Acts 13 and 14, we saw that there was this external conflict There's this conflict between Christians and Jewish people or those who are against the gospel of Christ. That's natural, we expect that. Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. Nobody likes to be told that the status quo is not good anymore. And yet Christians are coming through and saying, there is faith and faith alone in Christ. And that is where salvation is seen. The Jews are upset about that. They like the rules and Christians are saying rules no more. Acts 15 from last week, there's this conflict between the collective church. As all of these kind of elders and members come together in Jerusalem to talk about, hey, what should be required of these new Christians? The church has this kind of big gathering to make that decision. It's like a big association meeting for those of you who have like grown up Southern Baptist. And when a lot of people get together, especially Christians, nobody's gonna agree on anything, okay? When was the last time that you and your home church had a business meeting that went smoothly where everybody gets a voice and an opinion. I remember growing up and my grandfather always had something to say at the business meeting held on a Sunday night, okay? Some of you chuckling because you remember those days. And yet what we see is that they're kind of uh, trying to find agreement among each other to find unity. Unity. But what we're gonna see this week is a little bit different where we pick up in Acts 15 that will take us into Acts 16. It tells us a a different conflict, one of a a deeper nature. This one's personal. It's not Christians versus Jews or Gentiles. It's not church versus church. This is man versus man. These are two brothers, two co-laborers, two pastors and apostles that are disagreeing very deeply on something. So let's pick up in Acts 15, starting with verse 30. It says, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. So, a reminder to last week, there had been a letter written to these new Christians from the Council of Jerusalem, and they said, Hey, take this to them, read it among the congregation to tell them that it is by faith alone, that they are saved. They don't need to be circumcised or have all of these other rules put on them for salvation and fellowship. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So it says these Gentile Christians received this letter with encouragement. They are finding excitement about their new faith in Christ, and we see these apostles stay on and, and continue to preach and teach in the gathering and encourage them and strengthen their faith. Verse 33 And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, "'Let us return and visit the brothers in every city "'where we proclaim the word of the Lord "'and see how they are.'" So Paul comes up with a great idea. He says, hey, Barnabas, let's go back to every church that we started. Let's check in on everybody. A bunch of new Christians, we, they need some parental guidance. They're babies in the faith. We need to make sure that they're doing okay, that they understand what they should be doing as a gathering of believers.'" And Barnabas is for this idea. He thinks it's a great idea, but we all know that before a road trip, some decisions have to be made. Who's driving? Who's in control of the radio? Who are we going to let come in the car with us? Because if they talk too much or they don't talk enough, it's going to be really awkward. And so they have a conversation about who should get to go. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. So Barnabas says, okay, well, who could we take? We could take Peter. He's probably a little too Jewish for this crowd. Maybe we shouldn't take Peter. He talks too much. He says, we could take Barsabbas. That guy was with us. No, that sounds a little bit like Barnabas, which sounds like Barnabas. Then it'll be confusing who's who. Let's not take him. Okay, what if, just spitballing Paul, what if we take John? And I imagine Paul saying, John? Well, which John? Very common name. John the disciple that Jesus loved, John, the son of Zebedee. And he says, no, 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 uh, you know, John, my my cousin. Your cousin? John Mark? No, we're not taking your cousin. And a disagreement is sparked between them. The text tells us this in verse 38, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that, They separated from each other. The NLT says that Paul disagreed strongly. Interestingly enough for me, uh, the message I think has the best translation here. It says Barnabas wanted to take John along, the John nicknamed Mark, but Paul wouldn't have him. He wasn't about to take along a quitter who as soon as the going got tough had jumped ship on them in Pamphylia. Tempers flared, and they ended up going their separate ways. That translation has a little bit more ump for us where he says, now I'm not taking a quitter with me. He's still holding on to what had happened on their first run through how John had left them. They dig their heels in, neither one of them wants to concede. Paul would rather just not go. And Barnabas really feels like John Mark should be given another chance. And so what we see is a deep internal conflict between two men who I believe deeply loved each other, and we don't see a resolution. And this fight's not even about them. You ever had that before where you're actually, you're on the same mission, you agree to do the same things, and you're not even really mad at each other, but you can't agree about somebody outside the conversation, which is many of the fights we have. Hey, we don't actually hate each other. We're just disagreeing about this factor over here. This happens a lot in marriage where you're like, I think we're on the same page, but we're both upset about something and I'm not sure what it is. And so Rebecca and I, um, we do a lot of premarital counseling with couples to just prepare them for this, to go, hey, we wanna teach you how to communicate well so that you can conflict well, because don't think that you will have no conflict. That's cute and that's not true. And so how do we help you understand how to do both of them? Because what I have realized in speaking to couples is there's two home lives that everybody comes from. One of them where you use the word fight. Hey, we fight up in this house, right? In my house, we fought. I got a lot of big personalities in my home. Not me so much, obviously. It's mainly my little sister, big personality. You can hear it before you can see it. It's like that kind of fight which is helpful because if you're not in it you're like I'm going through the other room I'm not even going to go into there cuz it doesn't involve me but we would have fights we could throw down i mean it was like shoot first aim second load and explode let's just get it out there one time i threw down with my little sister on christmas eve there is no day so holy that we cannot throw down in the brill household okay now my wife on the other hand came from a different background they didn't have fights they had discussions yeah, some of y'all are like, oh yeah, that was, that was my house. We had discussions. So much so that Rebecca would go, honestly, I never really saw my parents fight because they would have discussions. And if it ever got above like just a church mouse voice, they would take it to another room. And so then when Rebecca would have a fight with her sister, because you know, sisters be like getting after it. They would have a fight and her, her mom would go, now Rebecca, you don't see me talking to your dad that way. We don't fight like that. And Rebecca would say, yeah, you got to choose him. Okay, like everybody's feeling seen in the church today because you go, oh yeah, okay, I, yeah, I feel what that is. And so we know that's the reality that people come to the table to then join in union together and they have different uh, styles of communication and conflict. And so we do a little thing where we have an object lesson where we always tell people, hey, when you start to throw down with your love of your life, your betrothed, the one you will be with until death comes, you need to be reminded of what you're fighting about. You mad that the trash isn't being taken out? Pick an object, say, this is what we're talking about. The trash not being taken out. This is what we're talking about, okay? Because we all know that when things get going, you'll, you'll low blow. Well, I really wish the trash would be taken out. Well, I wish that your mom was better. <laughs> Those of you who are younger, are like, oh my gosh, everyone who's a little bit older is like going, mm, amen. Best thing I've ever heard in this place. Okay, It's true. And so we tell couples, hey, pick a thing, because if not, you're going to derail, and you need to have a thing that reminds you what you're talking about. Man, it's a reminder that disagreement is normal. It's expected. But I imagine for these two men, this weighed heavily on them. This isn't really what they wanted to be doing because they were busy with other important things. I think for somebody like Barnabas, a few things about him, While I know that he wouldn't have wanted to have this disagreement with Paul. He was a Levite from Cyprus, a good Jewish kid, a leader in the synagogue who was transformed by the gospel. Most people believe that he was at Pentecost where Peter preached and thousands came to know Christ because Acts 4 tells us that Barnabas actually owned a field where he was from, and he sold it, and he came to the church gathering, and he said, hey, here's the money from the field. Take it and give it to the church for whoever needs it. He was a giver. It was Barnabas, don't forget Barnabas, who went to Paul and said, hey, come with me. Let me present you to the apostles who are terrified of you so that you can be accepted into fellowship. Barnabas stood in the gap for Paul to say, hey, we need to believe this man has been transformed just as we have been, and we should accept him and welcome him. God's going to use him. That was Barnabas who did that for Paul. His name wasn't even Barnabas. His name was Joseph. What a standard name. His name was Joseph, but Acts says they nicknamed him Barnabas because it meant son of encouragement. This dude has the gift of exhortation. He's one of those people, when you walk in the room, you feel loved, you feel cared for. He's encouraging you. He's putting his hand on you, telling you how good you look. Everybody likes to be told they look good. Even if you and him know it's not true, you want to be told that. People like that don't love conflict. They don't look for a fight. How hard it must have been for him to stand there with Paul and to vouch for John Mark. And the very person that he had vouched for previously say, I'm not taking him. He's not coming with us. And I think Paul too is often given a reputation that's not always true. Paul's given the reputation that he's tough and fearless. And I think that's true because he was the one who was standing up for persecution. He was the one being stoned almost to death. He was the one looking the religious in their face and saying, your rules have no place here. It is faith and faith alone. He would step into places and preach the paint off the wall. Some of y'all are too young to even know what that means, I guess. That landed better at the previous service. (laughs) Acts 14 tells us that he was so empowered by the Spirit that the people listened to him and thought he was a God. And yet I think he did love people well. I think he loved Barnabas. He and Barnabas had been on mission together for quite some time. They had been run out of town together. They had seen the Spirit fall on people and the gospel change people's lives. And when you're on mission with somebody, they become your people. They are your community. And so to stand there and have a disagreement like this and to be severed in this way is devastating. And some of you know this feeling personally. You've had best friends that turn out to be not friends at all. Your family becomes your worst enemy. People that you trust turn on you and they betray you. Arguments raise a lot of emotions that you thought you had dealt with or that had been laying dormant for a long time. People say and do things that are offensive and hurtful and it causes division and that's not what they meant to do. And I think the text is demonstrating to us that that's real life. I recently have had a friend that as we sit down and just talk about life and what it looks like to to be dads and to be husbands and um, talking about what it looks like as a Christian to be unoffendable. And so he suggested to me a book by that title, Unoffendable, written by a guy who's not a pastor, he's not in ministry, but he's a Christian And he said, the more that I study the scripture, I think that God has called his people to be so unoffendable that we would be able to take hatred and take harm and that we would just pass on it, that we would let grace step in in its place. And I'm still chewing on some of the content presented by this author. He has a lot of examples about how to do this in the world. But he says, why would we not act this way as Christians when everything has been given for us? We are the most offensive and yet Christ still stands in our place. My favorite quote from the book is anger can't live here. Anger can't live here. And I think about that line daily because I'm prone uh, to be angry and call it righteousness. I can get mad and frustrated because I think people should do things a certain way. And in Seth's world, Seth is right. You didn't do it my way. That's the dumbest way you could have done it. And if you're on my team, loyalty matters to me. And if you've been wronged, I'll justify that as well. And I'll say, yeah, they're the worst. And I've got to be careful about that because that's not always the right call. But what does scripture say to us on feeling this way? Matthew 5, 9, blessed are those who are peacemakers, those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. As Christians, we are called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. We are called to step into the world and to stand up for what is right, yes, but more times than not, I think that means we concede on our desires, we concede on our opinions, and we concede on our plans to think that we have the best idea. Ephesians 4, 26 says it this way, be angry and do not sin, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The NLT says it a little bit better. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. I think Paul's saying, hey, anger is a real emotion that you can experience, and yet it cannot control you. Context matters there because two verses before, he has told the church in Ephesus, hey, you've been given a new Garment to put on. You have been made into a new creature and new creatures act in new ways, which means all the things of the old life pass away, live differently. I'm actively teaching this lesson to my sons who in their four and five-year-old rage probably aren't hearing it, but I'm gonna keep saying it anyway, where when they get upset, I pause and I say, hey, you control your emotions or they will control you. You control your emotions or they will control you. And then I tell my four-year-old to take a deep breath. And he says, I don't wanna take a deep breath. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm gonna step back a little bit and say it again, just in case you swing. You control your emotions or they control you. James 1, 19 and 20 says this, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And that does conflict with the idea that we like to hold as Christians. It says, wasn't there a thing as righteous anger? Can I be mad about wrongs in the world? And I think yes, but I think James gives us a better opinion that says your anger will not accomplish the righteousness of God. So what would it look like for the church to be known as a place that works diligently to not be offended? There's no denying to me that Paul and Barnabas, they engaged in disagreement that probably left them both battered and bruised. It's a good reminder that your anger can be valid, but it cannot stay. Your pain can be real, but it needs to be processed. Your wreckage can be reconciled. And what I'm thankful for in this text is that as we move on and keep reading, it tells us that there's something more important happening in this argument. Picking back up in 15, the second part of verse 39, it says, Barnabas took Mark with him and he sailed away to Cyprus. So he takes his cousin and they go back to where they're from to continue to share the gospel. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So the brothers even say, hey, not what we would have wanted, but we we give you the grace of God to move forward in this mission. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Chapter 16, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Icenaeum. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers. It's good news for us to keep reading and see because we may forget to zoom out and see the bigger picture or to move forward from the argument and the conflict to see what God is up to. Because what most commentators agree on is that what has happened, even though there is dispute, is that the mission now has gone from one to two. Instead of two guys going one direction, we now have four guys going in multiple directions. And so even in conflict, the message of the gospel moves forward. Luke is clear about that. And what would have happened if they hadn't have disagreed? And I don't want to read into what is not told to us. And yet, Paul, moving forward, is allowed to meet this young man named Timothy, who we know becomes a very important character in the building of the church and the rest of the New Testament. Two letters Paul writes to him. He becomes foundational in leading men and women in the church and setting up how churches are supposed to be structured and led. And the result of all of this, the text says, let me read verse 5 to you again. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. What the Spirit of God was doing in this church was of greater importance than one disagreement. Some of you who know me personally, um, you know that before I worked at Mississippi College in student life, I was a pastor myself worked in a local church here for a number of years. Um, I obviously don't do that anymore. There came a time where we just had to make the decision that it was time to do something different. That was a hard decision. I was doing the thing that I thought was the peak of my life. I thought I could do this for 30 more years. This is the greatest job I could have. And yet, life happens. We disagreed with the way things were being handled. Some things were said to me that weren't kind. And so we made the decision that it was just time to move on and do something different. And in the coming months after that, we had a lot of people with great intentions want to ask us how we were doing and check in on us. And they would say um, kind of some some dumb things. They would say, hey, so do you hate the local church now? What? Do I hate the local church? No. "Mm, I bet you hate that church though, right? I don't. You know why? Because God's still moving there. God's spirit is still present there. People are hearing the gospel every single week and their lives are being changed. How could I possibly hate the local church? How could I be mad about that? The mission of the church is to model for the lost and broken what Jesus came to do 2,000 years ago. We are ambassadors to carry that message and to herald and proclaim it And we have to remember that that's the most important calling we've been given. Now, did that mean that my pain and experience was null and void? Not at all. I had to work through that. I had to process that. But I also had to remember by the grace of God, what mattered most. And that was my calling to respond and love, even if I had been wronged. There's a podcast that helped me along the way uh, by two guys, Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry. Ray, um, if you've ever Man, if you've never heard him preach or just speak, you should just like Google him and go listen because it's like your kind grandfather just like speaking, just grace over you. It's wonderful. And every once in a while in the podcast, um, it's called You're Not Crazy for Young Pastors. And so every once in a while, they take an episode where they basically say, hey, we've gotten a lot of emails and we just want to answer questions that young pastors have about life and ministry. And so Sam said, okay, hey, here's a question from a young pastor that says, Ray, how do I deal with difficult people in my church? And Ray uh, chuckled and he paused. And then with just all the grace in the world, <laughs> he said, brother, you don't. He said, you don't deal with difficult people. He said, that's not what the word of God tells you to do. He said, Jesus didn't say my disciples will be known by how they deal with each other. He says, John thirteen thirty-five clearly tells us by this, all people know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Processing pain is a very long journey. And I imagine that Paul and Barnabas both thought often about their disagreement. But I think they also recognized that the mission of the gospel was more important and it applied to them just as much as anyone who was hearing it for the first time. And some of you, right now in this moment, you've been hurt deeply. Some of you are maybe more confused about what's even happening in your church than you are hurt. And others of you probably think it's a lot of smoke for a really small fire. Everybody kind of has a different perspective on that. And this is only one area of your life. Because some of you have many trials and disagreements and conflict in other places that you're still processing through and dealing with. But what I want you to hear me say is that the spirit of God is going to continue to be faithful and to fill this place And it's a good reminder for each and every one of us that the church is still on the move. I also don't want us to miss how the story ends though. We don't find out here what happens between this relationship between Paul and Barnabas or Paul and John Mark. Clearly he's upset with John Mark still. But then in later letters that Paul writes to the church, here's what he says about John Mark. 2 Timothy 4, 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in ministry. Philemon 23, 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Colossians 4:10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. The tide has turned on this disagreement where Paul is now saying, hey, he is a fellow co-laborer. He is a useful worker in ministry. If he comes to your gathering, you welcome him in, greet him, accept him, let him partake in what you are doing. Reconciliation is a very long road. But I pray that you would choose that road because if Christ can walk the long road to die on a cross for everything that we have done and will do, we should do what he told us we were expected to do and pick up our own cross and walk the same path, knowing that we have been reconciled to the Father and that we should seek reconciliation.